Who'd like to open the prayer this morning? Ask Jesse. Pardon? Jesse. <coughs> Jesse. Uh, Mitch, would you like to open us in prayer this morning? Absolutely. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for um, today. Thank you for letting David come in and teach us about your word, Lord. Today, as we're getting ready to celebrate Memorial Day, appreciate all the veterans and what they have done for us. Bless this time. So that's so we can learn about you. That's the same in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, I thought we would uh, start out in the Psalms like we usually do. Let's take a look at uh, Psalm 104, which is a long psalm. And so, we need a really strong voice for a reader for Psalm 104. But I wanted to preface that this morning by... Just reading uh, a couple of verses out of Hebrews, and then I'd like somebody to read Psalm 104 for us. Um, So while you're turning to Psalm 104, I'll read uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Let me have Psalm 104. Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty. You cover yourself with light as with a garment. You stretch out the heavens like a curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters, who makes the clouds his chariot. He walks on the wings of the wind. He makes his angels spirits, his ministers a flame of fire. You who laid the foundations of the earth so that it should not be moved forever, you covered it with the deep, As with a garment, the waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the voice of your thunder, they hastened away. They went up over the mountains. They went down into the valleys. To the place where you founded them, you have set a boundary that they may not pass over. And wonders... that they may not return to cover the earth. He sends the springs into the valleys. They flow among the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. By them the birds of the heavens have their home. They sing among the branches. He waters the hills from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your works. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine that makes glad the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread which strengthens man's heart. The trees of the Lord 
are full of sap, the cedars of Lebanon, which he planted. Where the birds make their nests, the stork has her home in the fir trees. The high hills are for the wild goats. The cliffs are a refuge for the rock badgers. He appointed the mount. He appointed the moon for the seasons. The sun knows it's going down. You make darkness, and it is night, in which all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from God. When the sun rises, they gather together and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until he <coughs> O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. This great and wide sea in which are innumerable teeming things, living things both small and great. There the ships sail about. There is, there is that Leviathan which you have made <clears throat> to play there. These all wait for you that you may give them their food in due season. What you give them, they gather in. You open your hand, they are filled with food, good. You hide your face, they are troubled. You take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created. And you renew the face of the earth. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He looks on the earth and it trembles. He touches the hills and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. May my meditation be sweet to Him. I will be glad in the Lord. May sinners be consumed from the earth and the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Amen. Wow. Yeah, it's a, it's a long psalm. And, and there's a consistent theme as you move through it. A, conceim, uh, uh, a theme of God's providence, his provision, his care, um, the intricacy of his creation, and, uh, and that basically everything has its time and place in God's kingdom, in his economy. And I wanted to start there because we're looking at uh, 1 Samuel, and uh, I think we pretty much finished up chapter 25 last week, um, and there are probably some additional things that we should say about that, and probably will, because you know my style. Uh, but we're, we're going to attempt to get through chapter 26, and maybe even take a look at uh, chapter 27 this morning. So I realize that's somewhat ambitious. But what's, uh, what's going on with David and Saul right now? Because we understand this is the two major characters at this point in the narrative. What's happening with David and Saul? Well, David's hiding out and the Ziphites are squirreling on David's hiding out. Where's David hanging out these days? So this is a picture of, uh, this is a Landsat photo of uh, Israel. And so what you see here is this is the, the Nile Delta. Um, and so this is Egypt over here. The Sinai Peninsula is actually down here. And uh, this is a name that you'll see come up periodically as we move through Scripture, the Wilderness of Paran. 
and that's uh, uh, an area down there in Sinai that is pretty desolate. Um, you have the southern part of the kingdom of Judah here. You see Judah, and the southern part of that kingdom uh, going down as far as Beersheba, and I'll zoom in in a minute. But uh, this is kind of the edge of the inhabited area, because as you move down here into the, the wilderness, it becomes very desolate. And I'm going to show you some pictures, even as far up as En Gedi this morning, uh, to show you what this terrain looks like, and how rugged and uh, difficult that it is, and how you wouldn't expect to find any provision from God in there. And yet that's where David's hanging out. And we know that Saul is up here on the Benjamin Plateau, and uh, he likes pomegranates and uh, shredding his stuff. He's got his, his spear and other trappings of his kingship to demonstrate that he is the king and you're not. Um, and uh, he is a Benjamite, so he's hanging up out up here in the Benjamin Plateau. And every once in a while, he comes after David, so David's on the run. Because David has been... Uh, prophesied and anointed as the future king. And yet, Saul is the reigning king, and so there's a threat to Saul. Uh, so rather than Saul being a man after God's heart and caring what God is doing and wanting to join God in that, um, he's a man after Saul's heart, and he's going after David because David threatens that. So that's kind of the, the brief summary of where we're at. Uh, most of our activity is going to take place right around here uh, in this section of the scripture. And we're going to see David actually uh, eventually move to the Philistine country. And the Philistine country are, are, uh, is this area from Gaza up through Ashkelon and Ashdod uh, over to Ekron and Gath. And those were the five cities, the pentapolis of uh, the Philistines, and that's a very lush area, rich coastal plain. Um, and uh, we're going to see when we get to chapter 27 that David actually ends up taking this city, Ziklag, um, which was promised to Judah, and we read about it in uh, Joshua's conquest, but the Hebrew children were not successful in taking that city. But in the course of the events that are going to play out, we're going to see that David actually takes this city for Judah and it becomes a royal city. Um, but I'm going ahead. So I'm kind of zooming in here, giving some perspective on where the events are taking place. Last week we uh, read about uh, a guy whose name is Fool, <laughs> the ball. And uh, he was uh, a Judite, and he was from around... Um, this area here, Mayong, and had a, a very lucrative uh, sheep uh, business, and, uh, and it lists the number of head of sheep and, and other trappings that he had, so he was a very rich man, and uh, his business was run out of Carmel. Now, uh, there's a, a Mount Carmel, and then there's uh, a less well-known area that can be attributed to a place called Carmel. So Mount Carmel is up here. And this is in the, the area of Ephraim, up here in this part of the, the country. And it's kind of a medium hill country. There's uh, actually a lot of vegetation there and some really lush valleys. So it's a great place to raise sheep. So guess who was raising sheep? Lived down here in Beersheba and 
had sheep up here in uh, an area called Dothan, um, which is on the edge of the Jezreel Valley, right down from Mount Carmel. We know that historically, one of the patriarchs, Jacob, had uh, his sons raising sheep for him up here. So even though he lived down in the south, it was not uncommon to uh, have a kind of land-sharing agreement where the people would raise their sheep in this lush, rich region, which is the breadbasket of Israel, the Jezreel Valley. And so they would kind of be in the surrounding hills. And we know the story of Joseph. He actually got thrown into a pit in this area called uh, Dothan here, where he was coming to check on his brothers. And his brother said, here comes that, you know, that dreamer. Let's throw him in a pit and kill him. And then they say, oh, i got a better idea. Let's sell him as a slave. And he ends up down here in Egypt. And there's this whole story of God's providence and play that we actually kind of see a pattern for in this section of Samuel. Because one of the things that you see happening, David is, is being unjustly treated uh, by Saul. He doesn't deserve the uh, attacks that Saul is bringing against him and the attempts on his life. Um, and yet, nonetheless, he's responding uh, as a man after God's heart, or he's learning to respond as a man after God's heart. And that's an important thing to understand. So this area of Carmel may have been where uh, Nabal actually had his business. Um, and we also understand that when uh, Saul uh, defeated the Amalekites, he took the, uh, the king, King Amalek, and he paraded him uh, through, minimally through uh, Judah. But I, at the time that we taught that section, I taught that he prayed him through the enemy lands because he wanted to make a statement to the Philistines that he was a tough king and not someone to be trifled with. And so he took Amalek all the way on this circuit, all the way up to uh, Jezreel Valley and Mount Carmel, and then down uh, to the area of uh, Gerar down here. And so... He actually, it says he established a monument to himself on Carmel. And so I presented at that time that that was this Mount Carmel. But there's also uh, another area which you'll never find on the maps because it's disputed. But I wanted to bring it up because you may actually uh, hear this, that Mir Maon is an area that uh, there's a tell, uh, which is uh, an archaeological site where... Typically, people have settled over the centuries and they build on top of previous uh, um, civilizations there. And there's a tell out here um, that some people attribute to Carmel. The problem is, is that this is not the best place to raise sheep, although David raised sheep here in Tekoa. Um, but it wasn't an area that would be uh, support a large number of sheep and so that's why I present that even though uh, you have a, a Judahite with a business here, he actually serviced that business up in Ephraim. And, uh, and so, but nonetheless, this is where David's hanging out, and this is where David is providing protection for uh, Nabal's business. And what we're going to see is we're going to uh, take a look at some of this country this morning and what happens between Saul and David, uh, which will be their last meeting.
thought I'd start out with some pictures of this is what that area looks like. Um, this is actually Masada here, and you see the Dead Sea in the background. And so Masada is actually at the top of this plateau, and I'm going to move through some pictures to, as we get closer to that. But where that is, is geographically located, Pardon? Um, I'm looking east, correct. So I'm standing, um, take, a, take us to a map here. David, yes. Do we believe that this area was as arid as that in those days? Yes. It was as arid as that. And, uh, and that's why it's, it's right on the edge of this wilderness of Paran down here. And so Masada is right here. Right? And so I'm actually standing right back here. Um, we had come that morning from Beersheba and uh, taken a, a bus ride out through the, the country here and then ended up going along this route uh, and then viewing Masada from afar. And so that's where that picture is taken from. And you can see that's what the country looks like. This is sheep country, right? You got piles of rock and uh, you wouldn't think that there's anything there, but there actually is little tiny stubbles of grass there. Um, but uh, you can also see why they call this the stronghold of the desert, because it's very rugged land. Uh, you're going to see that there's actually lots of places to, to hide out and hang out. Um, so, I, and I apologize, this is just kind of a stream of pictures. I have not filtered them out. Some of them are out of focus. Some of them, uh, so that was Masada. Uh, the same location, I'm just zooming in to show you that sure enough, on the top of that ridge, there is the, the settlement of Masada. And what you actually see here, even though it's kind of washed out, there will be better pictures. This is the siege ramp that was built by the Romans when they conquered Masada. And it's still there today, you can see it? still there today, yeah. Is that buildings on top of it? Yes. And let's go ahead and zoom in a little bit here. So this is, this is that area that you would, you would uh, if you went to that area um, on the edge of the wilderness of Quran, this is what it looks like. Um, but you can see there is some vegetation. There's a little rock, uh, a couple of weeds and other things there. Um, this is uh, one of the uh, engines that was built by the Romans as part of their siege. Um, what you see here, this is, well, it's really hard to see. Uh, this is the siege ramp that went up. So the Romans, you got these uh, Jewish rebels hiding out on top, and they've got water, they've got food, they've got time. Um, they're going to hold out against uh, the Romans. The Romans, what they did is they learned from the civilizations before them, and they said, well, we will conscript labor from the very people that we're going against. And so they had uh, Hebrew slaves, rock by rock, build this siege ramp such that they could go up and take that machine to actually breach the top of the wall. And they would have those guys actually building the ramp and moving the machines up the ramp to, uh, to conquer this because uh, the Romans realized that, you know, it's very difficult to shoot arrows at your own countrymen. So this was a kind of warfare that they did. And before they did this, they actually put a, a rock wall all the way around this area. And I, I don't know if I actually have pictures of that. So I didn't go through everything this morning. Those machines were just to take them into battle, not to move any of the aggregate or anything that they were piling up? 
uh, yeah, they, that was after they had put all this aggregate together. And this was this ridge was built. This is the siege ramp that was built by the Romans. So those machines were just a protect, protective device for them to go into battle with. Right. So what they do is they move that machine up the siege ramp to the top, and then it had a tower that they could then climb up the tower, and, and it gave them some protection while they did were. Did they move those with animals, or did they push them by hand? Yes. <laughs> Use whatever they got. You know. And, I mean, these were a very hardy folk. I mean, we don't do this kind of labor today, typically. Well, those those you know those machines are even as simple as they may be look pretty advanced, actually. For oh yeah. What we consider the time to be. Well, we like to think of ourselves as smart folk, but there's nothing new under the sun. I mean, right. the machines that we develop today are based on technology that. How, how wide would that be? Pardon? How wide was that? How many soldiers could be abreast? Well, um, you see a, a stream of people going up here, oh, okay. and so they could probably be five to ten abreast, depending on how close you know they lock their shields and that kind of stuff. And and um, so this is actually going up, just to give you an idea of scale. Pardon? I see you better straighten that picture up, then people are going to fall off yeah, that cliff. Exactly. My beautiful bride. So she made it to the top of the cliff. And then you find out. What's that? You find out when you get to the top that they now have a tram on the other side. What's the elevation? Elevation. Well, this is right on the edge of the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea is the lowest point on Earth. And so this is the lowest point on the Dead Sea. And here's Masada. And so that's 425 meters below sea level. Masada is? Uh, the Dead Sea at this point. Dead Sea is. Is that the surface of the water or the bottom of the hole? That's the surface of the water. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. And so, you know, 1,200 feet below sea level. In fact, uh, from uh, here's Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is about 800 meters, so 2,400 feet. You're going from 2,400 feet, when you get down here to Jericho, you're actually below sea level. You drop below sea level right about here as you're going down this ascent. And so um, when it talks about Jesus went from Jericho to Jerusalem, 20 miles, it's a significant elevation gain. Um, you know, you're almost a mile in elevation gain at one point. So, um, so Masada is down here. And... Uh, there's a place called Engedi right here, which I'm going to show you pictures of because that's very uh, important in our study uh, where David's hanging out. And we're going to find out that David then even goes further south into more remote areas. Um, so my, my point was not to labor on Masada so much because Masada's not in our story, Engedi is. But I wanted to show you, this is what the countryside looks like. It's, uh, it's pretty desolate, pretty arid. Um, you would not expect, I mean, it's a great place to hide out if you're trying to hide out. Um, one of the things that you'll see, though, in this kind of rock formation is you have all sorts of little caves. Um, what you can see here is you can actually see the wall that was built around. So they built a, a wall all the way around. Anyway. That was to keep the people from getting out. That was to keep people from getting out, correct, because they're, go they're making a siege, and so they want to... Uh, well, let me see if I can. Yeah, let me 
see if this is, uh, eh, I'm not sure where we're at there. Oh, okay, that's still in Masada. So that's yeah. pictures of what the top looks like. Did uh, they have spring water up there? Pardon? You said there was water. Yes, this is actually out in the Dead Sea. They, well, they didn't have a spring at the top of Masada. What Herod the Great, great builder, when he built this as his vacation home, he put in a couple of million gallon cisterns. And, uh, and, and on, he had servants, they would fill those cisterns. So they had lots of water. So where's the nearest water? Well... That's a good question. So where is the, the nearest water? Let me uh, go back here a little bit. Well, there's fresh water. Okay, so um, down here in Masada, you're saying, okay, it's not spring-fed. Um, it's cistern water. Where are they bringing that in from? You can't take it from the Dead Sea because the Dead Sea uh, salt content, mineral content, is over 30% today. Uh, that's very significant. I mean, to give you an idea, the ocean is about 3%, 3.5%. The Great Salt Lake is about 6%. Um, this water is toxic. It's very difficult um, to actually submerse anything in this water. It's so buoyant because of the density of the water. And uh, if you take a boat out there, which they do, they dredge for minerals, um, they're these big flat things so that it won't capsize because it's so buoyant it'll just tip the boat. In fact, a uh, picture of us out playing in the water uh, was actually right out about here. And uh, if the water's so buoyant you can't get your feet down. It just pushes you up. But, so it's not, you're not getting your water in here. So where do you get the water? And that's what I wanted to show you is this area of Engedi is uh, the same terrain Right? It's this rocky, desolate soil, but all of a sudden there's a bunch of springs that pop out of the rock here. In fact, you'll even see palm trees here. And this is at the base of uh, the, uh, the cliffs of Engedi heading palm in. Trees? Palm trees, yes. Now, so there's palm tree. Um, this is what they call a coney or a rock badger or a hyrax. And we read about that in Psalm 104. God has appointed these little critters um, to actually uh, occupy this area of the world. Um, and uh, it is a cloven-footed animal, so it's not uh, a clean animal. And uh, there's a picture of one. Um, it, it actually is probably, my daughter said, is it related to the pig? It probably is actually related. Dog. Yeah, it's like a prairie dog. We used to call them whistle pigs. What's he doing in a tree with a cloven foot? Yeah. Pretty, pretty amazing creatures. And that's what, <laughs> that's what the Bible tells us. It's like, wow, these are pretty amazing creatures. These guys can navigate these trees and these rocks, these cliff faces, <coughs> and yet they're just a little tiny... And they have a hook. Bat. They have no claws. They're right. So it's called a rock badger. How big is it? Can you give us a... Well, um, this guy here is probably, you know, a nice cuddly. You oh, could okay. hold on to it. Uh, and they're really cute, and uh, they do this little chattering. They're very active, right? So they're sitting there, you know, hustling and bustling and playing and very playful little critters. And all of a sudden, they'll stop, and they'll stare at you, and they'll have a staring contest. 
They win. <laughs> they know how to do this. But they're, they're just these really delightful little creatures. And, uh, but what you'll see here... Yeah, let's go ahead and rotate this one. Yeah, waterfalls going. Okay. So what you'll see here is you get back into these cliffs, you'll see there's caves stuck back here, and you recall that this is where David was hiding out when Saul came to to look for him. And you can see this is a pretty rugged canyon. So you're not going to line, you know, ten men abreast and march through this canyon. You're going to pretty much go single file, maybe two uh, abreast going through here. And, and this is a place where Saul decided to take a time out from his men, who were quite a ways away, and uh, went into a cave to relieve himself. But you can see this is where the water is. They are actually springs that just come up out of the rocks. This is limestone, though, right? Yes. And that channels water. Yes, and that's exactly what's happening. That water's actually moving from a long ways away. And it just so happens that there's a break in the surface here. Uh, because of the geology, probably what formed the rift. And so you get these breaks and the water just comes streaming out. Uh, but it's a spring and you have, you know, some very significant pools of water as you move through there. Uh, some more of that spring, another one of those rock badgers. They're cute, so you take lots of pictures of them. Here's a little bit better, a little bit better uh, picture of some of the caves. Um, you can see they're pretty significant. They go back quite a ways. So this is the, the area where David is hanging out. And uh, I could take you to a whole lot more pictures, but that's not the point of what we're doing here this morning. But they're interesting. Well, I, it, I think it helps when we read through some of this stuff uh, to understand where it's taken place and what the desert actually looks like and why David would have gone to this place and found refuge. And uh, you need to remember, he's from this area up here, Bethlehem. And he uh, worked his father's sheep business uh, in the area down uh, around Bethlehem uh, towards Tekoa. And there's actually more uh, fruit in the, in the hills as far as grass and shrubbery and things like that on this side of the ridge. So this is a, a natural ridge that goes through here, and that's the ridge route. On this side of the ridge, it's, it's, uh, there's actually a lot of agriculture on this side. It's just that short little grass, and about the only thing you can get there is some, you know, sticky-tongued sheep that can suck that stuff off the ground. And so David was from this area, so he knew probably about these, these, uh, where these streams were and springs, and he figured this is a good place. That's why when Saul was chasing him along this ridge, he was trying to get to this cut so that he could cut over to Getty, and that's what we read about in uh, in chapter 24. And that's where all of this stuff with Abigail and the balls taking place is in this area around uh, Mahong. And David is either further south or he's at the Getty when all this is going on. So uh, that brings us to uh, where we were last week. And apologize for the long introductions. Um, so last week we saw that, uh, well, previous week, we saw uh, that uh, Saul came up against David at En Gedi, and David uh, was encouraged by his men as Saul is uh, giving David his back. Uh, he's uh, relieving himself in the cave, and he sets his 
robicide. It, 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 uh, um, it usually says that he uncovered his feet. Um, and so uh, at that point, David and his men are in the cave, unbeknownst to Saul, and his men are saying, go, stab him in the back. Now's your perfect opportunity. And he goes up and he cuts off the corner of the robe, and, and then he has a conversation with Saul because he's convicted by God that what he's doing is rebellion, which it is, and that he's trying to take the kingdom by force, um, which even though he probably wouldn't have fully processed that, what he was doing, that's what was going on, and God said, that's not right. And so David uh, gives a repentant uh, dialogue with Saul, and then we see the same thing played out with Nabal and, uh, and David, as David and his men come and they say, hey, can you uh, give us some vittles because we've been protecting you and your men, and and uh, Nabal says, no way, I don't know who you are, and he disses his parents and questions his lineage. And, uh, and so David pulls out his sword, and his men pull out their sword and say, okay, let's go chop them to pieces. Let's not leave anybody, no man, uh, alive of this man or any of his servants, right? And so he's going in to wipe them out, and the man's wife, Abigail, comes out and very wisely petitions. She first brings food and other things, and then she petitions uh, that David not do this. Why did, what, what argument does she make? Do you remember? So I'm going to refer you to chapter 25, and uh, starting in verse 18, you read about Abigail's intercession. And you get down to verse 23 is when she actually goes before David. And she, uh, she uh, shows full submission to David, which is a whole point that we need to probably talk about a little bit. Um, and that she bows herself to the ground. And then she says, you know, on me alone, uh, place the blame for my idiot husband. And she actually calls him that at one point. Uh, actually, much, much, uh, much stronger words than that. She calls him a worthless man, a son of Belial. Um, that he, he is a fool. Um, and yet, nonetheless, she is interceding uh, for him. Why? That's the question. Why is she interceding? For him? There was a lot more than just him at stake. <clears throat> Not more than just a mistake. What, what all was at stake? All of the men and her. All of the, all of the servants. Everything of servants, everything. Yep. That's, she's working for a lot of people, not just him. Yep. Right. So, so what's Saul's style? Saul's style is, let's go in and, and, uh, and kill and burn and take the, the spoil. Um, and God says, that's not what my king is supposed to do. And Abigail reminds him of that and says, you know, you don't want this blood guilt on you. So it's not so much that she's petitioning for her husband. Rather, she's petitioning for those that would be injured, the servants, and for David, uh, his future position as king. 
and how um, the way that he behaves today will be important at some point in the future when he comes into God's uh, kingship. Is there a model there for us? I mean, to me, I think this so. is a picture of intercessory, you know, not just prayer, but, but actually saying, you know, Lord, put the blame on me. I mean, this is hard to do, but... Yeah. Um, okay, Lord, give, give me that blame. Let me take that penalty for my kids, my friends, my whatever. Um, but... Don't do. Uh, you know, I don't know. Is there? Do you see a picture there for us? Yes, and I and I see it in more than just intercession. Um, I see it as a, an example of how to make an appeal to anybody who's in authority over us that's about to do <coughs> Right. You notice that her motivation here, or the, the basis of her appeal, is his reputation, if you will. Uh, his his name uh, is at stake, and uh, and so. She comes and not only makes the sacrificial thing of saying, hey, put the blame on me, I'll, I'll take the brunt of it, but she's making the case of reason to do this, not for not to do this, is for your reputation's sake, for the fact that you're going to be king. Right. So knowing that David is the future king, and she acknowledges that, right, um, there's a model here of intercession in uh, godly counsel. So... Uh, a man that is being trained up to have a heart after God um, is about ready to make a mistake. And so you see intercession of a godly person coming and saying, you know, um, I believe that you have a, a heart after God, and what you're doing is not God's plan. So you have an opportunity here to change your way. So there's that aspect of intercession. But there's but also... Put the blame on me. I mean, you could kill me. She's saying that. She is saying that. And yet, you know, it would be loathsome to do that. So well, that's why he thinks through the she's, she's acknowledging... And later he marries her. She's so. acknowledging corporate responsibility, which is a very hard thing for people to do. So is she personally responsible? David's men didn't come to her, and she didn't make a statement about his, his heritage. She points that. Right, so she's not individually culpable of a crime, but she is corporately because she's part of this family that is making this stand. And yet she says, "Okay, I'm responsible, but don't hold these ignorant people. Uh, don't charge them. Charge me, because I do know." And um, I will take that blame. So that's what she's doing. It seems like all she basically had to do was remind him because he has acknowledged, David has acknowledged in his approaches to Saul with the corner of his robe and whatnot and not laying a hand on Saul. Right. It's the same difference. Right. He, and he knows the rules. And he that's just the progression. lost his temper and forgot it. Right. That's the progression. You're seeing that David is learning and relearning now, how often do we have to relearn something? <laughs> All of us get it right the first time, right? Yeah, right. So he's having to relearn certain truths about God's work in his life, who God is, right? That's what he's reminded of, who God is. And that becomes very important when you have to walk by faith. 
You need to know who God is, and you need to be reminded of that. Because what you see is you see a future uh, king, the good king, coming and putting off evil. When we read through Psalm 104, um, and I'll, I'll take you back there, because that's what that psalm is all about. It's about God's providence, about his deliverance, uh, his provision, and his plan of how he's working in people's lives. And so this always gets me. I'm reading through this wonderful account about God's creation and, and all of this and his provision. And he says, let my meditation be pleasing to him. As for me, I should be glad in the Lord. And then he says, let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. It just seems like a, that's not, not the right way to end this psalm, right? Well, what's he saying? He's saying that there is a setting things right that's going to happen in the future and that we can rejoice in the knowledge that God is going to set things right, right? He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, praise the Lord. And that's a very important principle. Uh, the idea of delayed gratification, we try to teach it to our children. Well, God's trying to teach that to us. He's trying to teach us we don't need to take um, making it right into our own hands. We don't need to seek vengeance. Um, we don't need to be like Saul. We need to wait on the Lord in his time, and that means hiding out in the desert. In verse 28, yes, that's key. these forgive the trespass of your maidservant, the Lord will certainly make my Lord an enduring house. Yep. Because my Lord... Right. So, so she's reminding David of what his future is as the king, and how important it is um, what he does today, how that's going to reflect on him and his kingship, his representation of God in the future. Now, I wish all of our politicians would read this, uh, because what they're doing today is vitally important. It, you know, I tell people at work all the time, I don't care what you say, I care what you do. I want to see what the outcome is, right? And we read that continually through the Bible, too. Um, because the decisions we're making today and the way we live today actually affect that in the future. And that's what she's reminding David. She's saying, you know, God has a plan. Individually also. Pardon? That's for us individually also. Yes. What I do today can affect someone else. Yes. And that's the whole reason that we're here, is to learn how is God transforming us today, where we stand today, um, such that we make the right decisions. And David here is given a couple of choices that we see. One of them is he can take the kingdom by force. He can stab Saul in the back. He can take it by force. He can wipe out Nabal because he's been slighted and wronged. Um, and we're going to find out again in this next chapter that he again has the same lesson presented before him. He, can, he has opportunity to pin Saul to the ground with his own spear and thereby take the kingdom and protect his men. Right? So David is giving these choices, and this is something that came up in a discussion with my family last night. We were coming back from the spaghetti factory, thank you, and uh, 
we uh, got into a discussion about the atomic bomb and the use of the atomic bomb uh, during World War II and how significant it was that the United States is uh, the only country that's ever used such weapons of mass destruction and what the, a tough choice that was for the president that came uh, into office not even knowing that this had been developed and in the first day of office is briefed and uh, is told about this weapon of mass destruction and how they're perfecting a delivery system and that this could be used against the enemy, not for vengeance, but to end the war quicker, which would save lives on both sides. So he's presented with an ethical dilemma. First day in office, right? And Harry Truman says to the reporters, he says, I don't know if you guys pray, but have you ever had a, a whole hail bale dumped on you all at once? how it takes the wind out of you and knocks you to the ground. That's what just happened. Now, he's not disclosing any, any uh, details, but he's saying, pray for me. Because all of a sudden, I have this awesome responsibility. David is given these same kinds of choices. We, on a daily basis, are given these same kinds of choices. Now, we don't have our finger on a button. And I told my kids, my son asked me, he said, so, would you push the button? And I said, I wouldn't be anywhere near that missile site. <laughs> it's not me, right? Um, because I think about things too much. And I would think about um, what God is saying through Abigail. He's saying, now, remember, it's, your good is going to be established. Um, my purpose is going to be accomplished. And what I call you to do in this moment is make a decision one that chooses life. And that's basically what she says. She says, you know, there are a lot of servants that have no fault in this. And sure enough, the man is an idiot, my husband. But I'm going to intercede for him. Take his blame. Corporately. Because corporately we're all at fault. And, uh, and I would like you to not try and be the instrument of judgment in this case. Let God's course run its course. That's a very difficult place to be. Uh, on a lighter note, there's another principle here that uh, I think we can learn from, and that is that uh, I'm going to call it cookery principle. Okay? So, so ladies, if, you're, <laughs> if you want to win a man, <laughs> what do you do? You bring prepared meat, fruit, and baking goods. Yeah. You know, Big news. Wine. I'm, I'm totally serious. And actually, and, and this was what this was actually asked last week, and I and I uh, I skillfully avoided the question, which I do from time to time. I'm voice still. Well, I mean, a lot, of time, a lot of time people will take this passage about Abigail and they'll teach something that I don't think is the primary teaching. I don't think this is a teaching about submission because that looks completely different. And that actually got into a whole discussion last night I had with my son. You can't have submission without goodness. So... Um, and you recall from our, our study in Peter, um, 
that which is all about submission, First Peter is, that submission is a, a gift of God that we are given. It requires freedom to submit. Now, it doesn't require freedom to be oppressed. So you can be conscripted into slavery. Um, you can have someone go as far as taking your physical life. That's oppression, right? Um, submitting to that is not submission. What submission is, as it talks about in the Bible, is the freedom that you have to voluntarily place that which is of value to you under the authority of another. And that's why submission requires goodness. And the example in Peter, immediately following a long discussion on submission, before he talks about wives submitting to their husbands, is the example of Christ. How he submitted to death on the cross for us. Right? And so, one of the things I want to point out is this passage is not a primary teaching in how wives are to submit to their husbands. Rather, it's how we should intervene on behalf of all. Culturally, she went against her. Yes. I mean, culturally, she would have come out of this in an all-one. Yes and no. Yes, yes and no. I mean, she, she, uh, she admitted the truth about her husband, right? And she also told the truth to David about himself. So in no place was there deception in any of her communication. Um, she was uh, not even brutally honest. She was just honest. And uh, she even comes to her husband after the fact and takes care to note what condition he's in. So the guy is all drunked up and uh, coming off a party, she says, I'm going to let him sleep this one off before I tell him what just happened. Right? And then she comes to him again as, uh, as his wife, even though the guy's an idiot. Um, she comes to him as his wife. Now, it's important to understand, um, like, for example, this came up in the, the conversation about, you know, if I was in a missile silo, would I actually launch if I was called to launch? And uh, at some point, you know, there's rigorous training that goes into that kind of, uh, um, if, you're, if you're put in a position of that kind of responsibility, so... You know, the people above you uh, have given a great deal of thought to what they're asking you to do, and, and so you get into a relationship of trust, right, and you submit to the authority above you. And um, the issue is, is that submission is not blind. Um, it's actually intelligent that we're to use all of the faculties that God has given us, and that's what we're seeing. David is having uh, challenges intellectually as he moves through this. Um, we see it in chapter 26. We see it in chapter 27. He's not getting booming voices from God saying, this is what you need to do, turn right, don't turn left. Rather, he's getting information from godly people. He's getting information from lessons that he's learned throughout life. Right? Um, he's, he's drawn on his growing up as a shepherd boy and his understanding of that country and God's provision and uh, even in the midst of being hunted down how he can find joy and delight in these conies um, running around wild in the, in the caves of En Gedi. And he's being formed into a man after God's heart such that when he gets to the point where he's actually assigned the responsibility 
and uh, the, the authority and responsibility for the protection of God's people is actually handed to him, right? So the President of the United States today, a very powerful person, is given a briefcase. And in that briefcase are the keys, right? He has uh, authority to execute the full power of uh, military of the United States. He is the commander-in-chief, right? He didn't get there overnight. That's a process of formation, and that's what's happening in David. He's going through this process of formation. That's what's happening in us. We're going through a process of formation such that by the time we get to that point, we're able to do intelligent submission to God. That's the whole point. We're not to be uh, blindly submissive, but rather use all of that which God has done in our lives and all that he's shown us to try and discern good and evil and to hear his voice and to choose the good and not the evil. Pardon? What is it commanded to lean not on your own understanding? Um, okay, I, I think my, my hearing is good. Where does it come in where we're not to lean on our own understanding? Um, what does it say, the whole verse? Let's look at, let's look at context. Trust in the Lord with all thy heart and lean not on Right, so it starts out. Trust in her ways acknowledge Right. So, the, the whole context here, context of wisdom, right, um, says, this is in uh, Proverbs chapter 3, and it's, uh, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. So, it's an instruction from God to us, his children, um, and there is a process of teaching that we are going through. And that teaching is to make us wise. Wise not for the purpose of accumulating wealth and having pomegranates and and, uh, things like that, but rather um, to help participate in God's kingdom and economy. Uh, It says, for length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Two very important things, kindness and truth. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good uh, repute in the sight of God and man. So, what was Abigail reminding David? Kindness. Truth. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, because in that you will find a good reputation or good repute. Then he says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Now, when it talks about someone making your path straight, um, that means that you're following some course or direction. And it says that a man makes his plan, but the Lord orders his steps. Right? So we actually use our brain and we use all of the experience that God has is used put in our lives to form us to say, okay, this is where I'm going to step next. Now, if I'm stepping in the wrong place, guess what? Abigail's going to show up and chastise me. Um, and that's basically what we see here, is that in this formation, you can make mistakes. But God's not going to leave you alone in that. 
and that he expects that you will use um, all that he has given you um, to make uh, to choose the good. And if you get out of line, he loves you so much that he'll come along and he'll correct you. And that's what we're going to see a lot of from this point forward, is David gets a lot of correction. He makes a lot of course corrections. And uh, we want to pay attention to how he finishes his days. So I guess what I, I got on this because I wanted to point out that Ab, there's a lot of teachings about Abigail. People will take this passage and they'll make it about Abigail, they'll make it about uh, contemporary problems and marriages and things like that. That's not what this passage is about. This passage is about David understanding the, the providence of God, the plan of God, and how important it is that we operate in faith that God is actually doing something and that he will accomplish the good that he sets out. And that we can participate in that or we can disregard God. And we saw that Saul disregarded God, but David chose God through all of these corrections. And, uh, and I ended up taking, I didn't even get into chapter 26. Yeah, it's a good introduction. Um, I guess this must be really important because I've spent a lot of time talking about this formation of David's heart and this whole concept of uh, intelligent submission, even though I didn't use those words until today, uh, because that's what you see occurring. I pointed out the, the physical posture of worship and submission throughout um, this. I pointed out um, the uh, contrition of David and the humility of David when he gets corrected and how he chooses God consistently, and that he um, even reminds Saul that he's the king, right? He's not going to assert uh, Saul's authority because God put him in that position. And that's a really difficult thing to do. If you find yourself uh, in an oppressive situation, how do you choose the good when what you really want to do is pull out your sword and chop them to pieces. How do you do that? You have to have a vision for where God's going and what he's doing. And that's what David is getting. He's getting a vision for what God is doing and where he's going. And he actually ends up in some really uh, difficult places. He ends up in the wilderness of Paran which if you look at deserts in the world, it is a terrible place to be. That's why when Egypt lost the Sinai Peninsula, um, they weren't too, too excited about that. It's like, well, okay, you can have it. Um, they, they wanted it back because it represented a security of a border, but they use a whole peninsula to secure a border because there's nothing there. It's a wasteland. That's where David ended up going through this formation. He was in the wilderness of Paran. He was being tried. And, uh, and that's what's occurring. Let's go ahead and... and uh, there's lots to say about that. We need to live by faith. We need to understand personal restraint because it's what makes it possible for God to work. Uh, we need to not be like Saul, but be like David, uh, waiting on God in his time. A lot of different applications we can pull out. Those that are mature have a responsibility for intercession because we have a corporate share in, in the evil and, and wrong in the world, uh, whether we individually participate in it, we have a corporate responsibility. Um, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this time together. Uh, we thank you for uh, 
um, giving us revelation of what's going on in David's life and how important that is to what we're doing in our life today. I mean, we live in a world that, in many ways, we have trial on every side. Uh, you know, as I look at what's going on in our community and in our state and in our nation and, and uh, in our civilization in the West, and uh, Lord, I, there are many, many, many troubling things and hard decisions to make. And I know that, Lord, you put each of us in the individual position that we're in um, to affect uh, your purpose for your kingdom and your people. And, uh, Lord, please give us that vision so that we won't lose heart and grow weary in doing good. But that we'll understand that you are indeed working um, through us and through history in order to accomplish your purpose and, and uh, ultimately that the good king will reign. Lord, we thank you for this, and uh, we ask that you would be with us as we go from here. Protect us, provide for us. We thank you so much for your loving kindness and service towards us, Lord. Lord, we lift to you the, the message this morning that will come um, through uh, the, the pastor this morning as he preaches. And Lord, we ask that we would hear what you have to say to us from Ecclesiastes, which can be a, a book of great trial and struggle on a daily basis. As we, you know, These are the things where we actually, actually live. This is what it feels like. So Lord, give us uh, insight from your spirit as we uh, go forth from here. Lord, we thank you for all of this and we praise you. And uh, ask us in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.